everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with the lovely, enigmatic, inquisitive, disruptive Leslie Lee. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here again. Uh, how are you doing, Leslie? I'm doing good. I'm good. Doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. It rained a lot where I am. Did it rain where you were? Yeah, it was really raining a lot. Like a cats ton. and dogs. It's a problem. That's probably a problematic term to our furry <laughs> friends. Rain cats. The yeah. taco is down there. Oh, I should mention uh, Taco is a little sick. He's a little <gasps> ill. So, yeah. Well, uh, let me tell you. So I may have to, you know go and give him a walk because he has a little bit of a tummy ache. I've noticed he's gotten these tummy aches kind of regularly. And I know, and I finally noticed that it came when he was taking his medicine. Now, would you like to guess what the medication Taco is taking that's giving him, you know, these issues? You're, I've, you're kidding. I, Ivermectin. Taco's been no. taking Ivermectin. No, he's not. He's really? a mu- Dogs are, yes, really. Ta- Taco's been taking Ivermectin. Um, most dogs are probably immune to COVID. <laughs> so wait, why is he taking ivermectin? It's it's a dewormer. From a dewormer. Yeah, yeah, just like because he's a dog. <laughs> right, that's, that's what I it. thought. But then you brought up being immune to iver to, to COVID. Well, so since he sure. he has you know taken the ivermectin, I would assume most dogs who are in on that specific heart dewormer are immune to. It. It's a pretty popular one, I think. Okay. They're already immune to COVID, you're saying? Yeah, most dogs will probably already be immune to COVID, I would imagine. Unreal, but totally unrelated to ivermectin. I'm joking. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't get it. Is he really on ivermectin, though? Yes, he's really on ivermectin. Okay, see, there's a lot of variables, and I can't tell what's true. No, what's no, he's, no, he's really on ivermectin. Okay, got it. Okay, it's more than just a dewormer. It won the Nobel Prize for other stuff. No, no, we're not getting into it. I don't, I'm not getting into it. Like if you want to take it, take it. You know, you'll end up like taco. (laughs) But you know what? We are going to have someone on the show and this is not going to be about ivermectin. This is going to be. That was just a lighthearted joke. That was a lighthearted joke that probably got about a thousand people to unsubscribe. Um, And we are going to bring in our next guest, Reshma Ramachandran. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. And um, just so people know, uh, you are an MD, MPP, a family medicine physician, a fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at Yale University. Your research includes examining vaccine prices towards understanding future trends for COVID-19 vaccine prices, as well as access to COVID-19 vaccines in countries uh, hosting clinical trials. And earlier this year, She testified in front of Congress on COVID-19 vaccine pricing issues and potential policy solutions. She sits on the board of Universities Allied for Essential Medicine in North America, a member of the People's Vaccine Alliance and co-host of the Free the Vaccine campaign. So please uh, tell us what you are working on right now and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. 
um, you know, with the People's Vaccine Alliance and a number of other organizations, um, including those that are from countries that are facing um, significant disparities in accessing even a first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. We've been calling on world leaders, including President Biden, especially this week at the UN General Assembly, to take real action um, to ensure access. Um, unfortunately, we had a COVID-19 summit yesterday, and um, instead of the bold uh, policies that a number of experts and those that are on the ground facing these disparities are calling for, um, we basically saw a charity that was fairly limited and really acquiescing to the pharmaceutical industry's control of both the supply that's fairly limited um, of the COVID-19 vaccine and also control of really the price of the vaccine, um, not just for other countries, but also here at home in the United States. And so what were the things that Biden could have done and what are the things that instead he did do? Yeah, so um, it's interesting, you know, on the first day of the General Assembly, President Biden talked about the need for a collective act of science and political will to fight this pandemic. So that would you know, signal to us every tool in the toolbox is going to be harnessed to really um, address this access disparities that we're seeing. But instead, what was um, touted by different world leaders, um, particularly from wealthy nations, including President Biden, was just donations and really limited donations. 500 million doses here, a few hundred million doses there, um, not really meeting the demand that we that we're seeing from other countries. Um, we still still seeing, you know, around 2% of low, uh, low income countries, populations um, only accessing the first dose of the vaccine. And so what we have been calling for, and we know that President Biden has the capability to do, is to take um, the technology for the Moderna vaccine that was actually co-developed with public monies from the NIH. Um, all the clinical trials were actually funded from American taxpayers. Um, and really take that recipe and share it with other manufacturers that are standing ready um, to ramp up global supply. Um, we thought he might invest uh, more money in terms of um, expanding global manufacturing capacity. Um, but as our colleagues at Prep for All showed just a few months ago, out of the $16 billion that was allocated from the COVID recovery bills earlier this year for expanding manufacturing capacity, only a few hundred million has been used. So, you know, all this resources all are, are available President Biden has the capability to do something, but just didn't do it. And then finally, he's talked about the TRIPS waiver, waiving of intellectual property, which is a barrier to vaccine access, as well as for treatments and diagnostics. Um, but it's just been words. It hasn't really been action. And he stood alongside the European Union at the COVID summit um, to talk about donations. Um, but we know the European Union is also the biggest barrier and one of the biggest blockers um, uh, against waiving intellectual property. And Biden really didn't stand up to them to say that they must um, come on board to make these promises a reality. And can you I mean, it's probably obvious, but can you explain to people why that is that they're not uh, doing that? Yeah, um, I, you know, part of this, I, I think, is um, there's been some promises or at least claims from um, the pharmaceutical industry from both, you know, Pfizer CEO, Albert Burla, who President Biden called a good friend um, at the COVID summit, as well as um, from Moderna, the other manufacturer of the mRNA vaccine that's authorized here in the United States, saying that they're going to be able to meet the supply um, demands um, by the end of this year and next year for everyone around the world. However, all the expert analysis that's coming from um, you know, universities and other organizations is showing that that supply is not going to be met by these manufacturers. Um, so these claims are just not true. Um, so I think there's just a lot of trust that has been placed on these companies 
a lack of transparency from the companies about how much they're actually able to produce um, and really not wanting to challenge the status quo of allowing pharmaceutical companies to control the supply and price of these vaccines. And what about, uh, can you talk, a lot of people in the in our audience are, I think, you know, critical, skeptical, rightly so, of uh, big pharma, of, um, you know, Fauci has been saying certain things and then he, then he contradicts himself. So there's a lot of skepticism, I think, among a lot of people in, in this country, there's skepticism. But then I think among some audiences, like more left audiences, there's a skepticism about that combined with a skepticism about big pharma. So what do you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the pandemic has been you know, challenging in a number of ways, even from you know, a medical perspective. We were really flying by the seat of our pants to be able to figure out how to take care of patients, to understand the vaccines, understand treatments. Um, and what I'll say is that, thankfully, we do have like regulatory agencies like the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and there was a recognition um, in the last administration and also um, currently that science really has to lead the way, that there has to be transparency of the clinical trials. The trials have to be massive. And they were you know, more than other vaccine trials we've seen in the past. Um, and there had to be public accountability through these open meetings where um, they would uh, debate, you know, what um, the evidence actually showed. Um, so from a clinical perspective and from a medical perspective, you know, we do know um, the vaccines are very effective against hospitalization, severe disease and death. Um, and the trials have overwhelmingly shown that. And thankfully, we also had not just manufacturers involved with the trials, but also independent experts reviewing the evidence. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the skepticism, I'm, I'm relying on these independent experts and kind of the data being out there, thankfully, and the transparency around that to instill trust. And I think from the medical perspective, it, it seems to be there. Um, so, you know, from, thank, you, know, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci, I think he's also acknowledged the fact that science, you know, changes over time. And with COVID-19, we definitely saw that. Um, and with, with the booster debate, this really came into play as well, where we had President Biden kind of announcing very preemptively before agencies like the Food and Drug Administration, like the CDC, um, to say that boosters were going to be available for everyone. But thankfully, last week and even the past couple of days, both of those agencies have just taken a step back, reviewed the evidence and said, hold your horses. Um, boosters are you know, indicated based on the evidence for specific populations that are at risk. Um, but um, ultimately, the goal is to vaccinate the unvaccinated, and that includes the rest of the world as well. And why? What? Why can't? Um, I mean, Congress could and Shay writes. Uh, where is this? That Congress could threaten big pharma by pulling their patents, but that will never happen. I mean, what are the various ways that that this could be dealt with? Yeah. Um, so we know, actually, um, you know, Congress is trying to compel all these more uh, global manufacturing and trying to put in legislation. There's something called the Novid Act um, that Representative Roger Krishnamurthy and others are spearheading um, to try to push through Congress to actually get um, $25 billion that is estimated to be able to vaccinate the entire world available for other manufacturers to ramp up global supply. Um, and Congress has been sending um, a lot of letters um, to the White House because President Biden has a unique capability with the Defense Production Act, with the Moderna vaccine being co-developed by NIH and the patents actually held by the government to actually to com to actually share that without permission from the companies. He could do that, um, but he's chosen not to. And so we're trying to work on this on from all different levels. 
Uh, Congress trying to make sure there's investment for global manufacturing capacity, putting pressure on the White House to actually take the actions um, for on those government patents that could be uh, used for other manufacturer by other manufacturers, and then also um, you know President Biden putting direct pressure on him to actually use the powers under the Defense Production Act in the time of an ongoing pandemic around the world and a huge national security risk to use all the tools he can that he has available to end this. Isn't it short-sighted, counterproductive, self-defeating, actually harmful for Biden and all these other leaders of rich nations to not be doing every single thing that they can to get everyone vaccinated and pause people who hate the vaccine? Just pause for a second. Okay, so like people who the people who believe in the who I hate saying that it makes it sound like some political or religious decision, given that Biden at all believe in claim to believe in the vaccine, it's just inconsistent and incoherent, right? Like, isn't the whole point of this that it's a contagious disease, a contagious virus? And so you need for it to work. It can't just be stomped, stamped out in one country. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we, you know, we know that variants and kind of more dangerous variants, like what we saw with Delta, are going to emerge in, in populations that are unvaccinated. So the longer we keep doing this, this just creates this perverse cycle of needing to have booster after booster after booster and different types of boosters to really to address these different variants to be able to end this pandemic eventually. But if we actually don't get to the point of vaccinating the entire world and closing off those pockets of unvaccinated folks, we're never going to get there. And so we're just setting ourselves up for a vaccine arms race um, by being this short-sighted and by only doing these limited donations or kind of doing these spurts um, to help, you know, particular countries um, in their vaccination campaigns and not even really concentrating probably more resources here at home to vaccinate everyone over, you know, to really make sure that everyone who's unvaccinated does get the vaccine. Right. Now, what, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this and confusion around this, which is that at first people thought that you could transmit the virus less when you were vaccinated, right? Now they're saying that you can still transmit it once you get it, once you're infected. But isn't there, doesn't getting um, vaccinated, obviously it helps you, the individual. Does it also help others? Yeah, the, the evidence that we've seen from different countries or if they've looked at um, what, we, what we've called breakthrough infections um, actually shows that transmission is still reduced uh, amongst folks who are, un, who are vaccinated. So there is still a protective effect also for people around you um, if you have the vaccine, in addition to obviously preventing severe illness, death, and hospitalization. Um, so that's really good because I am getting a lot of questions now, both from my patients, family, and friends, where they have exposures um, to folks that have COVID or um, they might have had an infection that's you know mild, but they will be around children who have not yet been authorized um, you know, to receive the vaccine. Um, or, you know, immunocompromised folks are still waiting for their booster, for instance, um, and they have worries that they might be transmitting the virus, you know, just as much as they did before they were vaccinated. But the evidence shows that um, it seems that transmission at least is reduced or the risk of transmission is reduced if you're vaccinated, which is great because that's not just protecting yourself, but also everyone else. Elliot asks, hello, I'm wondering why the Sin No Farm vaccine less effective 
than Pfizer and Moderna and how much transparency there is with Cinefarm side effects? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's been a kind of a tough question. Um, we've um, There's been some uh, what we call preprints or non-pre-reviewed literature that has shown um, variable effective efficacy rates for the Sinopharm vaccine. And unfortunately, um, because of um, the limited mRNA uh, vaccine supplies and kind of the unwillingness of those companies to play ball with other manufacturers, a number of countries, especially in South America, in Africa, are relying on the Sinopharm vaccine for protection. Um, and it's we're, we're seeing kind of limited effects as a result. And now they're facing surges, even when being vaccinated. Um, and so uh, the evidence is still out there, you know, still, we're not completely sure yet, but there's, it's suggestive that the Sinopharm vaccine is maybe not as effective as the mRNA vaccines. Um, the WHO is doing their best to review the evidence as this comes in uh, on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. Um, and there might be a future where we see actually in those countries in particular, mRNA vaccine boosters being critically important um, for populations that receive those vaccines um, because um, the efficacy either waned um, much more quickly or was less effective. Someone in the chat who is, uh, I guess, very much into the idea that it should be a choice. Um, I see this argument sometimes, but those who want the vax already got it. If it protects you, why do you need to force me into it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a uh, great question. Um, I, I think there's a, a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, we're still seeing obviously a number of people that are unprotected that have not yet been able to get the vaccine. Children in particular, um, folks that are elderly in which vaccine immunity or vaccine efficacy might be waning. The FDA has just um, recommended obviously booster doses for them. And so we'll have to wait for that. But then also immunocompromised folks in which efficacy also might be waning as well. Um, and there's other folks who are contraindicated from getting the vaccine just from a medical perspective. And so those populations in particular, we'd want to protect. I have a daughter who is not going to be able to get a vaccine anytime soon. She's 17 months. Um, so I'd hope that, you know, w- you know, for our collective well-being and also for wanting to end the pandemic together, everyone would want to get vaccinated to also protect those folks who just don't even have a choice um, in getting vaccinated or not. Um, on the other, the other, the other issue is the variants. Um, where, you know, with folks, again, being unvaccinated, just a higher likelihood of more and more dangerous variants coming around. And that increases the possibility that the current vaccines that we have right now may not work for those. Um, government uh, scientists at the NIH, companies, many others are trying to work on modified um, vaccines. So basically a new NIH Moderna vaccine that will address the variants, but that's not been authorized yet. And so um, as we're seeing Delta happening, new happening now, uh, another variant that's emerged uh, abroad that's also reached the United States, uh, we, also, we, we, we wanna make sure that further variants don't emerge that are gonna be um, completely, um, uh, you know, that will take us by surprise and our vaccines that we have currently available will be ineffective against. Bill Cole, question for Reshma, is the mRNA vaccines gene therapy? Uh, no, um, at least under you know, FDA definition for gene therapy, it is not. It does not modify your genes. It does not modify your RNA or DNA. Um, the mechanism of action is different. So um, this is meant to just boost your own immune system um, to be able to protect you against the virus and the various um, serious effects of it. Okay, here's another question. Isn't transmission reduced from the superior natural immunity? 
Um, transmission has not been looked at, but um, in particular, there's been there's some preprint evidence of this. It's not peer reviewed again, um, so we don't know for certain. Um, what we do know is that it does seem that um, folks who um, do get um, COVID nineteen and you know obviously you know putting aside the other serious side effects they can have, long COVID for instance, is something that can still happen with anyone who has COVID and then survives or doesn't get hospitalized, um, that can have, you know, many months or years of effect, um, or months of effect that we know so far. Um, uh, it, there is, uh, we do are seeing that at least immunity or like prevention of getting COVID again is possible from getting the virus at one point. So, I mean, am I right that natural immunity can be good, but it can also allow for someone to just drop dead? That's correct. Right. I mean, the point the reason that people are doing the vaccine as opposed to natural immunity is because if you get that, if you survive it, then you have natural immunity. That's great. But you just may not survive it. Yeah. And you also might have a number of other health problems like we're seeing the long covid has been, you know, something that we're seeing in so many folks, especially folks that are unvaccinated. Um, and so, you know, not having your forget you know, taste of sense and smell, chronic fatigue. Um, heart, there's also been issues around like um, uh, related to breathing, your heart as well, um, that can come from COVID that can last for months at a time. Yeah. So I'm just curious, do you have any sense of why people who oppose this are not against like measles, mumps, other kinds of vaccines? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hoping now it's it, it, that things will change. We have like full FDA approval for the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, we're seeing the Moderna mRNA vaccine. So maybe, you know, that kind of stamp of approval, of having full approval, will maybe turn some folks who think of the MMR vaccine as being fully approved and seeing that you know, kind of similar to the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, but I think it's also hard because um, there's, you know, COVID-19 has just been a time of uncertainty for everyone, including folks in the medical community. And we're all learning together. Um, and we're trying to get the information out there as quickly as possible, but at the same time, um, making sure that we're, you know, dotting our I's and crossing our T's as we do so. Um, so I'm hoping that with time and continued conversations, um, we'll, we'll come to a point where the COVID-19 vaccine is accepted as the MR MMR vaccine, as the polio vaccine, as the other vaccines that we take in our childhood. Um, but it's still, it's gonna, it's just gonna take time and continue conversations. And obviously talking to your health providers, you know, people that you trust is probably the most important thing. Um, and so heavily, you know, strongly, strongly encourage folks to do that. And then Bill Cole asks, uh, does everyone that shows up at the hospital get monoclonal antibody therapy or does it depend on your insurance? Is there an out-of-pocket cost? Yeah. Um, so uh, if there, yeah, there's specific indications for monoclonal antibody treatment, um, depending on what stage of COVID and what your other presenting symptoms are. But if you do to show the hospital and you fit that criteria, you can get the monoclonal antibody treatment. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, the U.S. government um, and a number of state governments have waived um, the out-of-pocket payment costs for these treatments so that it can be accessible. Um, obviously, there's other costs associated with, um, you know, hospitalization and whatnot uh, that may not be covered, but at least for the treatment itself, um, Congress um, and the president um, has said that, especially during the time of the pandemic, in the time of a public health emergency, it should be available to people without um, any sort of additional charges. 
What I don't get is, okay, so someone writes, don't trust the gov should be the bottom line. But like, okay, let's talk. Are you for Medicare for all? Let us know. Are you for Medicare for all? Because this is my question. Do we want the government involved in this stuff or not? I get it. I get how, like, I'm obsessed with proving that Biden is not being as good as people say he is at all on this issue, right? Like, he did some kind of symbolic half-assed measure, mm-hmm. uh, but hasn't pushed it fully through. Right. Um, and we, you went over earlier on in the show um, that, you know, all the other things he could do. So that's something I'm I'm confused about. Like, is it, so you do want Medicare for all. So how are you going to trust the government to manage that? Okay, so then we got someone blackmailing me in the comments saying I'm vaccinated, but if you keep trying to shut down information and you won't acknowledge the side effects, I'm going to start saying not to get vaccinated. No, no threats in the chat. No, no threats in the chat. I mean, I get I get maybe there there are some people who feel that way. I don't know. I mean, that is kind of an interest. (laughs) You're holding the, uh, the, the world hostage. Why would you do that if you think that it's that it's good for you just because you want to screw the world? It's an interesting proposition, but I don't shut down information. You know, I have a show and, uh, you know, there are lots of other channels. I don't think that th- things should be censored. Optimism of the will saying, I don't think MF was using you in a personal sense. Rather generalize one, Katie. Okay, I feel better. Leslie, you live in an interesting neighborhood when it comes to the vaccine and masks. Well, I mean, it's just Virginia, but some people... I've, at this point, I'm like, okay, so if you don't want to get the vaccine, like, why... <laughs> I don't understand, like, what are you still so hopping mad about? Like, I got the vaccine months ago. I have not thought about the vaccine for months. You know, I I don't know. But, like, people who don't want the vaccine seem to talk about it, like, a lot. And, like, I don't know what you think is happening. And I really don't want to open the can of worms. But, obviously, I do not trust the United States government. I do not trust Big Pharma. I spend a lot of time reading like histories about the CIA and stuff. I don't know what the plan would be. I don't know what the evil plan would be with this particular, with the vaccine mandate. I'm just not quite sure what the, what the, what the nefarious plan would be other than profit motive, maybe, but still that wouldn't like, they would be making money off of you. That wouldn't be like, it would be microchips, I would assume. I, I guess that's the only thing that, like, what, like, what do they actually were like microchips? Like, I can understand like the safety concerns, but it seems like a little bit more than that going on. Yeah, well, actually, there might be an argument, like, for the pharmaceutical companies, it's actually in the best interest for them to prolong the pandemic, uh, right? To have pockets of people that are unvaccinated because it gives them a continued market for booster vaccines or modified doses, um, and so that's you know. My fear. Um, I've written a lot about um, pricing in particular um, because uh, Pfizer CEO, Moderna CEO, J&J, all of them have talked about the future market that they see with boosters uh, where they can keep on increasing the prices. The Pfizer CEO said he wants to charge what um, or the CFO specifically said he wanted to charge something on par with $150 to $175 per dose. And right now we have protections, you know, from the U.S. government, actually, to, you know, to make sure that our insurance premiums don't go up, um, that we're not paying out of pocket um, for the COVID-19 vaccine. But in the future, I don't, you know, it seems like after a public health emergency, those protections won't be there. And what we've seen with other vaccines, like the flu vaccine, we've seen prices go up, despite it being a publicly funded technology, 
And we've seen insurance premiums also go up. These costs have to shift somewhere. Um, and so, you know, my worry, my big, big worry is that we are creating an environment in which we're prolonging the pandemic and a market that companies are just profiting off of continually. Yeah. So the basically the longer people wait to get the vaccine, the more money potentially the big farmer will make from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we have to fight big pharma is by getting everyone vaccinated, including people in the countries that, I mean, you have countries like what, like, so India is exporting vaccine, right? But their mm-hmm. own citizens don't have access to it. Can you, yeah. can you talk, elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, India was, um, has a hub for a number of uh, vaccine manufacturers. They actually are producing um, the AstraZeneca vaccine in large amounts. They have an agreement uh, with them. And so uh, for COVAX, which is this big initiative from the WHO and other partners to provide vaccines for low middle income countries, India is the primary supplier. And so for a while, actually, when India was facing the, 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 their third Delta surge, um, I had friends and family members who were getting hospitalized, who passed, unfortunately, amidst that. But the Indian government had to make a very tough decision to say, we're going to temporarily halt exports because we need to be able to protect our own people right now with the vaccines that we're producing within our borders. Um, only recently did they say they're going to lift the export ban and, and start to uh, contribute back to COVAX again for other low middle income countries. Um, so, you know, it, it's just been devastating to watch. Um, um, uh, India, along with other countries, are trying to figure out, can we give people one dose, vaccinate you know, our 1.4 billion people with one dose, wait a while, see if that offers them some protection um, before we give them a second dose because we just don't have enough. Um, people are trying to make these trade-offs right now in the face of these supply constraints. Whereas here in the United States, we have enough vaccine to vaccinate the entire country three times over. And since March of 2021, we actually threw away 15 million doses which would have been enough to vaccinate entire small countries. Can't we like do so? I mean, isn't that illegal what they're doing? I know it sounds so naive, but how, how the hell we need to make sure people know about this. And I, again, I think we got to sit outside. I want, I need a list of people. I need to find all out who they are. I'm going to make cards that have their names, say what they're deciding to do. And, you know, Basically, make them recognize, make people recognize that these players are making some bad decisions mm-hmm. and that maybe they should, you know, face some consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Like a I'm, bunch I'm, of needles with COVID. This is my idea. No one else's. But I say just surround their houses with a ring of COVID needles. Seriously, I'm, this is so inhumane. This is so messed up. Yeah, I agree. As, as a medical professional, you know, I wouldn't want that no, on anyone. Yeah, um, right. just, um, just to put that out there. But, you know, I, I think this is where I think the trust in the pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical companies are beholden to their shareholders. They're out to make a profit. I don't have any faith that they will do the right thing here. The only, um, you know, people that I can see that I can hold accountable as a health professional, as an advocate is really our, our leaders. And that means really putting President Biden's feet to the fire on this to say if he really actually wants to see a turnaround with this pandemic, to see the economy reopen, to actually protect the American people, he has to take bold action. Yeah, I'll put feet, I'll put feet, you put fire to his feet. I'll put the, the, the needles, the COVID needles. Terrible. Come on, Joe. 
come on, everyone. This is really ridiculous. I know I'm saying the obvious, and but it is. It's so inhumane. It's so perverse. And can you tell us about your family uh, members in India that you just referred to? Yeah. Um, how they have fared? Um, it's been variable. Um, some of my family members who have the ability to stay at home, um, which is not many, um, have been able to protect themselves. Um, a, a number of my family members and a number of friends, unfortunately, they have to work. Um, they have to provide for you know, their loved ones. And because of that, um, they've been exposed to COVID and they've been hospitalized. Some of them have faced um, situations in which they can, could not actually find a hospital that had a bed for them. Um, they were admitted to hospitals where there was no oxygen, there was no um, uh, actual um, treatments available, they were being used um, completely by other patients. And then they've suffered other kind of long-term effects. Um, there's actually a fungus that's attacking COVID-19 patients in India that actually caused a, a secondary epidemic. Some family members have actually been affected by that. They have shortages in treatment for that as well. So it's just been devastating. And just the news that we hear um, from, you know, all of us who are Indian American or, um, you know, from India uh, about our family members, it's just been constant um, about the devastation that they're facing. And really the big difference is that we had access to a vaccine sooner. We had access to doses. It was, you know, it was just there for them. It, it, that wasn't even a, a possibility. Mm. Um, two more questions from people who are, I think, a bit skeptical. If the vaccine is necessary for public health, then why isn't patent open for generic production? Shouldn't there be a cap on farmer profit from it? And then for people who have recovered from COVID, the vaccine represents much risk and no benefit. It's a matter of simple logic. Um, so for the first question in regards to patents, um, unfortunately, um, you know, we have to have, uh, you know, either President Biden or in Congress, definitive action actually being taken to release those patents. The, the reason why we've been targeting specifically the Moderna vaccine is one, just the significant public investment that went into its development. Almost 100 percent of its development was funded by the U.S. government. On top of that, we de-risked it completely because we paid for doses up front. Um, for all these vaccines. Um, and then uh, we also own the patent. Um, the U.S. government actually owns the patent uh, for the Moderna vaccine, a key patent that the that President Biden could then use and in the contracts can actually take the vaccine recipe and share with other manufacturers. There's just a choice being made, though. This is the, the issue I was talking about before, the lack of political will. Um, we're just not seeing, you know, President Biden, um, the administration really making that choice, instead deferring to the manufacturers and and maybe trusting them a little bit too much to provide enough supply. Um, the other part of this too is that Moderna has not donated or has not delivered any vaccines to low-income countries to date. So, you know, this company that benefited from U.S. taxpayer dollars um, has not even, you know, has not served the larger public yet. And um, they're supposed to be making donations to COVAX has not happened yet. So just, you know, that whole background of everything is, is just been very troubling. But um, that requires, again, action from our leaders. Um, it's not something that can be, uh, that, that recipe right now is under wraps um, by the U.S. government, um, by um, Moderna, but the U.S. government actually has to, you know, take action to actually release it. Okay. Anything else that you want to make sure that people know about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, the I, as, for, you know, just as a physician, and who was was works on, worked on the wards um, when COVID nineteen hit the United States, and just saw the devastation. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, 
I know there's been, you know, different discussions about, you know, natural immunity and whatnot. Um, still would encourage people to get vaccinated, you know, talk to people that you trust, talk to your loved ones, you know, you know, take a look at the evidence yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to also, you know, talk about it more, but just would heavily, you know, strongly encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, mostly just to, you know, protect your own health, but also your loved ones around you who just don't even have that choice. And then the other part of this is, you know, as, um, you know, citizens, as people who want to see the end of the pandemic, who are just tired. Um, we, we need to see something different from this administration. Um, and we need to see President Biden really taking bold action and not just, you know, relying on charity and limited charity um, to make this pandemic end. We need justice. And that means sharing of the vaccine technology and the production knowledge with manufacturers that are ready. There are hundreds of manufacturers standing ready around the world, uh, willing to, you know, be engaged in this fight. Um, but there's just not political will to make that happen. And so we really need to have everyone like clamoring on their representative's doors or senator's doors on President Biden's door to call for that action to see it end this pandemic because everyone's tired and especially your, your local physicians um, just seeing this devastation. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your hard work. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. That was great, huh? Yeah, great, great interview. Oh, so much terrible stuff. I got to figure out how to do that thing where I scare people into doing the right thing. These big pharma people. Mm. See, that's, don't trust big pharma, colon, get vaccinated. Yeah. And get others vaccinated. That's really what we need to do. I, I just don't understand, like, why do people keep typing in the chat to ivermectin one of... A Nobel, Nobel, yeah. Did it win? Get back to me when ivermectin wins a Nobel Prize for for uh, for not curing because it can't for uh, what giving you immunity to COVID. Or, but even if it did, so what? Then go buy some. What do you want me to? What do you want like people to do? Just tell me, ivermectin people. There's chloroquine people now, hydrochloroquine people now in the chat as well. What do you want people to do? People who don't want to get vaccinated, what do you want us to do for you right in this moment? Tell them that they're they that they shouldn't feel bad about that. That they're good little boys and girls. Not bad. I, I don't know what you want me to do. Like I'm not at your house making you get vaccinated. I'm not stopping you from taking ivermectin. Maybe they want us to be outraged about the mandates. Anyway, well, you know anyway. what? <laughs> we're going to shift gears. We're very excited. The next guest is really excellent. And we're going to be talking about an incredibly important issue, which is Haiti. Let me just introduce the guest and I will bring her on. She is making her Katie Helper Show debut. Jamima Pierre is a sociocultural anthropologist and associate professor at UCLA Department of African-American Studies and the Department of Anthropology. And she is also with Black Association for Peace. So very excited to bring her on. Hello. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. This is Leslie, my co-host. Hi, Leslie. Hello, nice to meet you. Wanted to ask you, uh, I, I saw you, you were on uh, today, you were on Breakthrough uh, News, <laughs> yes. big fan of that show. Uh, didn't even know what, when I asked you to come on. So take that, Breakthrough News, just kidding. 
we're big or we're mutual fans. Uh, love Rania and Eugene. Um, but you were talking about, of course, the latest in the quote unquote crisis. Uh, I, I want to know, how do you even frame this issue? I, I think there's been a lot of discussion about it, which makes it seem like an issue of charity. Like, you know, we need to be doing, we need to be helping these people um, and not as an issue of justice or law. Right. So you mean the the migrants, the asylum seekers at the Texas? Yes. Um, sorry, yeah. Yes. Um, because, because everything with Haiti, you know, for me, the right, crisis so is a crisis of imperialism. And so the way to frame this issue is to say there wouldn't Haitians would not be at the Texas Mexico border if the U.S. was not in Haiti destroying um, the, the Haitian state and causing all kinds of mystery, uh, misery there. And so that's the first way to frame it. The second way to frame it is to think about, you know, I think a lot of people think that these people just showed up from Haiti, you know, 15,000 of them, maybe what, did they swim across from the island into Texas? And that's that. And I'm just wondering why people are not even asking why there's so many people at that border. And, 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 and that way, then we have to step back and, and try to figure out why are there so many people at that border? Why isn't anyone, and, and to do that is to also have to ask, why, why isn't anyone talking about the border in Tijuana um, that has thousands and thousands of people waiting? And all, this all has to do with U.S. policy. Um, um, U.S. policy against migrants in particular, and especially the past five years, where you had from, from you know, there are always migrant ca caravans coming, they're, not caravans, but there are always migrants coming from Central and South America, you know, result of U.S. imperialism in these places. If we think about, you know, uh, <laughs> you know all these uh, Honduras and all these places that suffer coup d'etats and right-wing um, uprising, uh, right-wing takeovers, right? So we've always had that. But in, in around 2016, you started having uh, Haitians coming in, um, coming through Brazil up the seven countries and, and, and into the country. And it was around, it's around the same time that you had this process called metering that started under the Obama administration, where to ask for asylum, the, 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 the process to ask for asylum just completely slowed down. To a ground to a halt. And I don't know if you've heard, and maybe I don't know if your listeners have heard of metering, but basically, in order to even come up to the border to ask for asylum, you would be given a number and, and an, an appointment to come and ask for asylum. So it's not like you can come up to the border. So then, and they, and they would only limit the numbers of people coming, right, um, to ask for asylum. So they said, well, today we'll just accept 50 asylum claims. And everyone else would just have to sit there and wait for weeks and months. So this is when you start getting the numbers growing. And then, you know, with Trump two years ago, and so they remain in Mexico, Right. So you have both metering. So you have thousands of people waiting already. And a lot of people, even South brown people of, you know, people of color who are not black are not from Mexico. So they're all, you know, left there, you know, living in squalor in Mexico. So the numbers just swell in addition to the caravans that started coming together for safety reasons, because, you know, it's not safe to travel alone and, you know, going through these areas. So this is the reason this is like the complete with the complicity of the Mexican and other governments. The U.S. border actually has moved. There's 20,000 you know, black migrants in the southern Mexican border. The Mexican government has been harassing them as well. Two years ago, the African migrants rose up and protested. So, so, so this to me, and I am Haitian American, but this to me, you know, to talk only about Haitians is to exceptionalize Haitians and to not link their experiences 
to those other people who are suffering from U.S. imperialism, including other Black immigrants from Nicaragua, <laughs> Venezuela, Colombia, uh, as well as from the African continent. And how how do you compare uh, the treatment of um, now I feel like I shouldn't say uh, just Haitians because uh, you you just mentioned exceptionalizing the Haitian experience or Haitians, but actually we don't even need to make it that. It's just the the treatment of asylum seekers by Trump versus Biden because of course Biden's shtick, part of his big shtick was that he was not a Trump, right? He had a heart. He was going to make America great again, ironically. Uh, how different are their policies? Is the it just policy, discourse? It's, it's always discourse. I mean, we should have learned this with Obama, right? I mean, the, the reality is you say one thing and then you do another. You should always follow, which is why Glenn Ford, oh, rest in peace, Glenn Ford, but um, used to call them the more effective evil, right? Because they, they you know, Trump was too crass, right? And, and Trump said it said all those quiet parts out loud. He just called them a shithole country, whereas Biden is just nicer, but he would never say that. He would never say that. But at the same time, you know, so so Biden kept a lot of the, you know, Trump's um, um, policies, including, and this is important, the Title 42, which uses COVID as an excuse not to even allow people to come up and ask for um, asylum. And, and it also required the CDC to change Haiti's status uh, in terms of COVID to like high so that they say, well, these people are coming from a place where, where COVID is high. And we know, you know, using disease to keep black people out is, is long, a, a very long history of, of, of racism uh, and white supremacy. When the CDC, for example, labeled Haitians as AIDS and HIV carriers back in the 90s. So this is like close to my heart. I remember that time. So so, so he's Biden's been using that Title 42. And I don't know if you know this, but the... Um, there's a report that came out of CNBC that Biden has under Title 42 between January and now, there's been 690,000 people deported under Biden. That's more than Trump under Title 42. And Biden's only been in office for nine months. And Obama was the deporter in chief, and he only deported three million people in eight years. We are at almost a million before the year is over. So that tells us that, you know, there no matter which party is in power, the policies are very similar um, in terms of migration and they might sound nicer, but the policies are similar. And then the policies that create migrants, right? U.S. imperialism in Haiti in particular are very much similar, are, 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 are the same policies. They just carry on from one to the other. And I'm sorry, I made it, I said black associate, it's black alliance for peace. So I'm sorry, I, I made black it alliance sound like a nerdy peace, yes. Uh, academic association <laughs> instead of uh, Black Minds, which right. is what, what it is, um, which the great <laughs> Margaret Kimberly is also a member of. Yes. Um, who's graced both of our shows, both mine and, and Leslie's. Um, can One, you explain to people what, I mean, this is kind of basic, but what do we even mean by imperialism and what are the policies in, in, in today's world? Like what is, what is the legacy of imperialism, but also how does it manifest today? Well, the legacy of imperialism is, um, you know, if you, you read Lenin, yeah. <laughs> it's like imperialism. And, and, you know, this for me went because my, my specialty actually is also the African continent. So imperialism is when the Europeans met in Berlin and cut up, you know, they decided to cut up the African continent and, and, and pacify the living people and took over the land. And you basically take over the land and, and, and processes, you run the place. And imperialism in, in the U.S. is basically 
U.S. imperialism is the same thing. You take control of the political machinery and the economic machinery of these places where their sovereignty is no longer available to them. So Haiti is a perfect example. And and I've been, you know, I say this all the time. Look, Haiti has the the, the Haitian state has been destroyed. Haiti does not have sovereignty. And, And the latest example is such that, for example, after the assassination of, of Jovenel Moïse, whose mandate, whose mandate had run out in February 2021, thousands, millions of people in this um, in Haiti to protesting that he gets out. What happens? The core group, which we can talk about, um, the core group and the, the State Department and the Organization of American States said, well, we support Moïse's mandate. He gets to stay in power one more year. So despite what civil society says, the, the Haitian, you know, the, the U.S. spoke and then they supported him. So despite all of this, it's the same. So he, and then he appoints Ayo Henri, who is not an elected official. Um, he appoints him and then he gets assassinated on the day that Ayo Henri was supposed to be sworn in as prime minister. So the, the reality is this, the, the other acting interim prime minister called Joseph should have been the prime minister that kept on because, you know, Henri wasn't put in. What does Biden do? He sends a group of people to Haiti that weekend and and then they can, you know, they're basically they've decided that Henri is their man. And then they announce immediately that Henri would be the prime minister leading Haiti to uh, to to democratic elections. Now, before Moïse, uh, Moïse was assassinated, the U.S. was pushing for elections and the Haitian community, the I call them bourgeois opposition, were saying we can't have elections until, you know, we have we don't have a a a a a. a an elected uh, uh, government. We can't have elections under these circumstances. The U.S. is pushing for elections. As soon as they pick Henri, now they're saying, oh, we don't need to have elections. We can wait to the end. So what that tells me is if you're not a colony, how is it that the core group can decide that who's going to be your prime minister, that you don't need a president right now, we can hold off on elections. Um, and, and And this is why I blame the U.S. media as well, because Daniel Foote, did you start with Daniel Foote already? No, we didn't talk about that. We should. Okay. I mean, I can talk about that later. But so, so part of it is U.S. imperialism in Haiti has been the complete takeover of the Haitian state. Of course, with the complicity of the neocolonial minions on the ground, right? And, the, and our non-Black light-skinned oligarchy, which, which run, you know, everything in Haiti as well. So they work together with the oligarchy and they've taken over um, sovereignty. But they're the ones that also you know, put in place Hillary Clinton, placed Michelle Martelly in that political party in power in 2011. So we're suffering from 10 years of, you know, of installed um, leaders for Haiti. That is a classic imperialism. There is no sovereignty for, for Haitians. So that's what I mean by that. Right. And just so people know, Daniel Foote is the U.S. special envoy for Haiti who resigned in protest over the deportation behavior he called inhumane. Inhumane, right. And so that's, this is an important one. And and stop me because I feel like I am talking a lot, but that's why we want you here. But um, Daniel Foote, what's interesting about Daniel Foote is, first of all, it is extraordinary that you have a special envoy quit, but quit in these terms. Because normally, even if they have disagreements, they'll lie. And then you'll have like a a meeting and then a public handshake. Thank you for your service. We didn't see eye to eye, right? 
something like that. Right. And he called out everybody. Right. And so um, so that is extraordinary. I, I don't remember, especially under a Democratic president, to have this envoy quit like that and, 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 and really um, say um, over the deportations. But you know what's being missed in this reporting is Daniel Foote's last paragraph. And the mainstream media is complicit because they don't want to talk about, and let me read to you what the last, last paragraph of his um, resignation letter says. It says, last week, the U.S. and other embassies in Port-au-Prince issued a, another public statement of support for the unelected de facto prime minister, Dr. Alio Henry, as interim leader of Haiti and have continued to tout his political agreement over another broader earlier accord shepherd shepherded by civil society. And then he says, the hubris that makes us believe we should pick the winner again is impressive. This cycle of international political interventions in Haiti has consistently produced catastrophic results. So that is not being covered in the news, but this is right then and there because people will say, well, it's gangs and because that is the racist trope, right? Haiti is dangerous. People are locked up in their in their bunkers and they're afraid and it's these gangs and so on and so forth. His last paragraph belies his first paragraph because the last paragraph says the U.S. has been installing people. And, and Dario Henri, by the way, was supposed to be prosecuted for the murder, right? Um, the prosecutor said he needed to be indicted. And what does he do? He fires the prosecutor and the U.S. stays silent, right? We're, you know, the U.S. is for democracy, right? Yeah. We're selectively hands off. Exactly. So, so, so Daniel Foote actually lays out clearly what's going on in Haiti in terms of interference. All these other embassies, the Western embassies, the U.S., handpicking who they want to be supposedly Haiti's leader. Has he been listening to you? What's happening? <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I think he probably, I think, you know, this is great for us as Haitians because I think, the core group and the U.S. have locked have walked in lockstep, lock and people should also ask why the hell the core group, which is an unelected group of white folks um, from Spain, representatives from EU, OAS, um, Germany, and all these people, why do they why do they run Haiti? They make these decisions. So I think the core group has always walked in lockstep with the U.S. State Department. And the OAS, which is, you know, with Almagro, a very right wing U.S. pawn. Right. Um, this is a this is the first split. And to me, that's great. It's, it's similar to as like the split between France and the U.S. when the U.S. makes it made, made its white supremacist pact with Australia and China. Right. So, so for me, this is good because it actually the veneer is off. And I think it's really great for us to see and to have this guy, Daniel Foote, be so explicit about what he sees as U.S. imperialism in Haiti, even though he doesn't use the word imperialism. I think it's important for all of us. Right. He just needs a couple more interviews to watch a couple more interviews with you. <laughs> and he'll be quoting Lenin, denouncing imperialism. <laughs> and what can you tell us about the assassination? Any new insights, any new theories about it? What does it represent? Also, regardless of who actually did it. Well, the thing is, whoever did it is very wealthy and has a lot of money and has a lot of connections. And we probably will never know. Um, we won't also, you know, we, we don't even know. You know, people don't even talk about the fact that the FBI left Moise's house with boxes and boxes of evidence. So the U.S. knows what's going on. Because the other thing is, because Haiti does not have 
a, a sovereign government. The U.S. knows everything. For some people are saying the U.S. either knew that the assassination was going to happen, they let it, or they knew about it beforehand. They or they're, they're you know, there's some, you know, they advocate for it or whatever. But the U.S. knows everything that happens in Haiti. Nothing happens in Haiti without the U.S. and the international community knowing. So whoever did it, you know, I think the lowly people are going to suffer. Right. Um, not suffer, but are going to pay for this. Like the the chief of not the chief of police, because, you know, I think, you know, he knows more than he's saying. But I'm saying like Dimitri Hila, the, the chief of security um, um, and, and, and the guy who's on the run, who Ariel Henry was on the phone with on the night of the mastermind, supposedly, who Ariel Henry was on the phone with the night of the, the assassination. So we think it's, you know, people are saying it's part of the oligarch, you know, one member of the oligarch, to, you have to have a lot of money to actually pay for all of this, 20-something Colombians, and then also hide the money. You know, we still don't know who paid for it, but um, we don't think the the um, the person is going to be caught. The U.S. has a lot of the evidence. We, we're wondering why, why the FAI has all the evidence. Um, we haven't heard a testimony from his wife. Yeah. Right. Um, he's you know, she's all over the place. She's you know, my husband is dead, but I'm going to go on Anderson Cooper and say I want to be president within a month of his dying to me is like, OK, really broken up about it. <laughs> So I'm just like, she still hasn't testified. She's a key witness and she hasn't testified for the Haitian investigators. So that doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah. And what about the response from Biden and Saki to the the imagery? I guess what about the, we should discuss the imagery first, the imagery of white men on horseback with whips that some people are saying, well, they're just reins. The same people who, if Cheeto Mussolini had, if this had happened under Tito Mussolini, they would have been rightly outraged. But because it's happening under Biden, they're not. What do you make of these images and how much of a departure are they from recent history and from less recent history? Well, I mean, people are, you know, what's the imagery? Um, the images are, 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 have evoked a visceral response from particularly African-Americans. Um, in fact, it's interesting to me, this is the very first time the Congressional Black Caucus had even put out a statement on behalf of Haiti in like 20 years. <laughs> Considering everything that's happened to Haiti um, in the past 20 years, it's remarkable for me. And, and it's a very toothless statement, I, I must say. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, people linking that to slavery, you have the slave patrols, you have, you know, slave catchers and these images, people are putting them side by side and saying, look, look at this, look at, look at what's happening. So, and so my, my, my thing was, I was like, so what is it about this particular instance that evokes such a visceral response. And I do think it's linked to slavery. But then I'm like, you know, there's so many terrible images of what the U.S. has been done, doing to Haiti and other migrants at the border that we don't get to see, right? So, you know, the U.N. occupation killed 30,000 Haitians with cholera. That's violence. N not even a statement from the CBC. No one talks about it. There's the violence of dismantling the Haitian state, the killing of the Aristide supporters, the brutal massacres under Moise over and over again, so many dead people, so much bad treatment. But this is the image that gets everyone upset. And, and, I, and I have to, you know, I have to think it's the spectacle of it all because what's, it is, what's criminal is the way that the U.S. has treated <laughs> Haiti and Haitians and other migrants for all this time. Um, and, and, the, and, and what's criminal is the dismantling of the, of, of, of the Haitian state. 
um, and, and, the, and, the, and the stealing of sovereignty of the first black nation in the hemisphere, you know? But I do think it's the imagery for African-Americans. And, but then I think it's also the inability to, to, to step out of U.S. exceptionalism and to see and to link. And this is why I don't want to exceptionalize Haiti because we do that, we exceptionalize it and make it Haiti and we don't link what the U.S. is doing to Haiti to other forms of imperialism in the world. So we don't see, for example, the connection to what's happening in Afghanistan after 20 year uh, 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 occupation and the people asking for asylum. Right. Um, the, and, and I say Haiti and people from Afghanistan are all victims of empire. And I think that's an important point we need to make. And what about the economic warfare that's launched against Haiti in terms of all these trade agreements and also just the founding of, of Haiti and how they are indebted to France? Can you talk about those legacies? Yeah, they paid off that loan. They, they said that they, they paid off that loan. I mean, back, uh, uh, I think, 20, 30 years ago, which is a lot of people say it was just like Aristide was deposed when he demanded um, payment back. But yeah, so the Haitians had to pay their slave masters for their freedom. I mean, that's the reality. Um, and, you know, and so that indemnity is, is you know, is worth, you know, billions, if not trillions right now because uh, of, of what Haiti had to do in order to actually get recognized as as, as, as an independent nation, right? And so the U.S. did not recognize Haiti for 64 years. Well, for almost 60 years until right before the end of slavery, right? Um, and so you think about a, a, a territory that was uh, full of enslaved Africans, um, scorch and burn war to get rid of, 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 of the system of slavery, and then with no one trading with, with Haiti, right? And, and, and so left there. So you still have that over and over again, and you, and you bring it, you pass it forward. You know, under Clinton, um, uh, uh, under uh, Reagan, Clinton, the, the, the dismantling of the Haitian rice industry, right? Um, by bringing in, you know, through neoliberalism, by bringing in cheap rice, um, um, to, to Haiti and, and killing that rice industry. You have the killing of the Haitian black pigs um, um, so that Clinton's um, Arkansas farmers can bring white pigs to Haiti. So this has been consistent. There's also, you know, when, um, when Aristide wanted to, or, or one of the presidents that came, wanted to raise the minimum wage um, and the Obama administration was completely against that. Or when Venezuela signed the Petrocarib Fund to help Haitian development. I don't know if you guys know about this, the Petra Caribe mm -mm. funds. So Hugo Chavez had this, had this Petra Caribe fund for Caribbean nations. And that was diplomacy. And this is when gas prices were very high. Venezuela was really making a lot of money from gases, uh, from, from selling his oil. And he said he, he would, he had this deal for Caribbean nations primarily that they would give them oil for very cheap, um, at very low interest, and they didn't have to start paying it for 25 years, and they would use the profits from selling the oil to develop their countries. And people are saying this is one of the reasons why the U.S. really went after Preval, the president before the one that they installed, is because even against, and this is in the WikiLeaks files, even against U.S. Um, prodding, Preval went against the U.S. and signed the Petrocarib funds, um, Petrocarib fund uh, agreement. So, but, you know, the first thing, you know, the U.S. forced Martelli and them to do was to get out of the Petrocarib Fund Agreement, right? So everything that's there to help Haitians has not, um, uh, you know, has, 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 has been completely 
pushed out and taken away. The U.S. has basically really helped destroy the mass movement that brought Aristide to power. And a lot of farmers still own their land. And what they want to do is really turn Haiti into a place where everybody's working in a tourist industry, the same, like similar to other islands. And so that, you know, then you lose your sovereignty, you lose your land, and then you end up being just a laborer and, and you know, working in a sweatshop because that's what they want to bring. They bring they want to bring factories and sweatshops and, and tourists for people to work in. I just was looking up this clip of, the, of Jen Psaki. Um, oh, here it is. Let's see. I just wanted to show you guys, uh, this is interesting. We have a, a great clip of Jen Psaki dropping one of her Psaki bombs, responding to the um, resignation, Daniel Foote's resignation. You almost feel bad for these people sometimes. Don't. They get, they get paid to lie. Yeah, all right, I won't. I know they get paid to lie, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jen. A couple of questions about Haiti. Um, the first is the, the president has often used his bully pulpit during the most important time in his administration. Why is he not using that bully pulpit to speak out forcefully himself on the treatment of patients? I would say, Yamish, um, certainly I've represented to you all his point of view. Uh, his point of view is also reflected in the actions that have been taken through the administration, including the investigation, including the change in policy. Uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security oversees these efforts um, and has been quite outspoken and quite visible on what steps we should take moving forward. And he certainly may still speak to it. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of events happening here, including the UN General Assembly, COVID and others. And uh, I, I would rule that out. Respectfully, I just have a couple more questions. Everyone else got sure. questions in. Respectfully, I understand that you are the spokesperson for the president. These are images that are traumatizing Haitian Americans that he promised to treat respectfully and, and with humanity. Why isn't the president telling people himself these images that people say look like slavery are wrong? Me as president, I as president, condemn them. How is he not doing that? Why is he not doing that? And, and how, what are people supposed to take away from the fact that he's not at the bully pulpit himself talking about these images? Yamiche, I think people should take away that his actions make clear how horrible and horrific he thinks these images are, including an investigation, including a change of policy, uh, including conveying clearly that this is not acceptable and this is he's not going to stand for this in the Biden-Harris administration. Our actions make that absolutely crystal clear, as have our engagements with a range of voices, a range of concerned advocates, members of Congress, and others who we want to communicate with, not just about our horror, but also about what our immigration policy is moving forward. Also said in his letter, he called the, pre the, the U.S. policy inhumane, deeply flawed. Does the president believe anything in this letter that Daniel Foote is saying rings true, has some sort of point that he, that he believes is, is true? Which aspect? Called the, 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 he called the, the policy toward Haiti inhumane. He said that he wasn't specific in his letter. What I noted earlier before, what I noted earlier, let me finish, Yamish. What I noted earlier before is that we have taken very specific actions as it relates to the horrific photos that we that are not we're not going to stand for in this administration. I don't know if he was referring to that or something else. That's why I asked the, raised the point. His purview. Let me finish, Yamish. 
His purview was not about migration. He didn't raise his concerns about migration privately. We respect his point of view, respect his ability to bring forward concerns, to raise ideas, to raise proposals. That's certainly something the president welcomes from everybody on his team and something that he had the opportunity to do in a range of meetings. We also have to make decisions here based on what we feel are going to help promote democracy in Haiti, including uh, Haitian-led uh, reforms, Haitian-led steps on the ground to make changes in the country. A number of people who say that he did raise concerns over the deportation of Haitians and the treatment of Haitians. Are you saying then that Daniel Foote is not telling the truth in this letter? I would point you to the State Department, uh, who have conveyed clearly in their statement what I just said. I promise. Yeah. The, the last question is, Daniel Foote, the, special, the former special envoy to Haiti, he's raising this idea that the U.S. should be listening to Haitian civil society, not backing the, the current prime minister who was not elected by the people. What's the president's response to that? Because those civil society members have been telling me and other reporters for months, even before the assassination of the president, that President Biden was not listening to the people of Haiti about how to move forward with their government. We support a Haitian-led process charting the country's course through the current political situation. We don't back any one political group, and we continue to continue to encourage all political stakeholders to engage in dialogue and find solutions together. And that has been our objective through all of our policy process making throughout the course of this, in addition to providing a range of assistance, training to, uh, to people on the ground. So... That was a little bit atypical for Yamish Alcindor. That was more pushback than the Biden administration usually gets. I mean, Alcindor, I believe, is Haitian American. Right. So I, I'm I'm assuming, you know, not to not to present like a monolith, but I think that the Haitian community is a monolith at all. But I do think that was interesting to see pushback on that. What what are your thoughts of that exchange? Well, I, I am actually surprised because they've really supported the Biden. You know, they've taken a lot of stuff. They haven't critiqued Biden. I still think she could push more in terms of thinking about, you know, the, you know, the long legacy of Democrats and, and imperialism in Haiti. So it is it is quite surprising. And I, and I wonder if she's going to get reprimanded for pushing so hard. Yeah. Um, Biden on, on this. It is it is quite surprising, just like Daniel Foote's letter was quite surprising. I haven't seen anything like it. Um, <laughs> in a long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for this footage of her um, talking about Haiti. I can't, she's where, where she's actually acting and saying that this was about like protecting Haitians. That's why they had to do what they were doing. Um, you know, even the horse men on horseback, you know, this is about protecting them from COVID and keeping them safe. I can't find it, which is yeah, I think um, it was like one of these morning shows. I think that's yeah, the- it was a morning show. Yeah. I just tweeted out because I thought I had it, but now I can't find it. But it was uh it was creative. It was an interesting way to, you know. Right. I applaud her creativity. But do you think this is going to have any effect on on Biden, on the administration? What what are you hoping will come out of all of this? Well, I do think it's going to have an effect just on the Democrats trying to win in the fall. (laughs) Because between, you know, this comes right after Afghanistan, which was a mess. Um, And so so I I'm not sure. um, You know, I I, I actually I never thought Biden was going to do more than one term because I think the contradictions are too great. This economy is bad. From the very beginning, he he went against the six hundred dollars, lied to people how much, you know, and, and they try to make us believe that. 
you know, our math was wrong uh, <laughs> in terms of, um, so there's been like one thing after another, the COVID response has not been great. Um, you know, you put all your eggs in the vaccine basket and don't do anything else because you want to keep the economy open. So I do think, I do think there's a lot of, um, I think this is, this is, this is a big one for black communities. And I do think though, the, the, um, no one's talking about imperialism. So people think this is a one-off. And so if, you know, they've already said, well, we're not going to use horses anymore as if it was the horses that was racist. <laughs> that was racist. Um, and, and, but no one's questioning the policies, right? So, so what's happening right now, you know, what the DHS did, they went down to the Southern border of Mexico to number, to see how many numbers of, of migrants that are there. And, and so, you know, to, 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 to figure out, they're still pressuring the Mexican government, the Guatemalan government, the Colombians, you know, to keep these Haitians and everybody else out. And nobody's questioning those, um, those things, including this Congressional Black Caucus, wondering why, why, why are we supporting that Ariel Henry? Why is the U.S. so hands-on when it comes to Haiti? And, and, and they're not doing that. They're just mad that he's not responding to these pictures, into to this thing at this border, and they're not they're not going beyond the representation and the spectacle, and that to me means that he might survive it because even the Congressional Black Caucus are like, well, we need an investigation, you know, like just the most tepid request. Right. Uh, we need, and then they end by saying we need to send aid and COVID relief for Haiti, and I'm just thinking, you guys are members of Congress that sign off on every bill. Right. Or, you know, when the CIA um, is involved in doing all these things and you this is all you can muster that we need to send COVID relief and aid, knowing that, you know, it's USA that's actually come in. You know, it's like the gift, you know, don't look at the gift horse, you know, <laughs> was, yeah. I don't know what the thing is in the mouth. In the mouth the yeah. horse, right. right yeah. And so, so I do think he might survive the Haiti, Haiti one actually much, 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 much easier than he would survive the Afghanistan debacle. To be honest, and partly is because people, you know, Haiti will be in the news, people will be outraged, and then they'll be like, Well, we did all this, we allowed a few people in, but he's still deporting people. Like, there are planes that left today, no. there are planes that left yesterday. And so, but he'll get away with that because, you know, it's Haitians. Because it's Haitians and because he's not Trump. He's not Trump. And, you know, he's already deported more people than Trump. So, and, you know, nobody's saying anything. But, you know, it, it breaks his heart. That's the difference. I saw someone saying that, uh, you know, they, he knows it's wrong. I saw someone saying blue checks on Twitter were saying that they were saying like, well, these border patrol guards are Republicans anyway. And Trump supporters as if. Yeah, as if. But, you know, when I was working with trying to bond um, asylum seekers out back in 2016, um, what we found out was 80 percent of the judges in California were Obama appointees. 80% of these judges that were denying asylum claims and, and doing all of these things. And so people don't know, and they don't know by design, right? The mainstream media does not respond, does not report on these things. And so we don't know these, you know, this is about fully bipartisan um, action. It just seems like it, it isn't, but it is. That's like that famous footage of kids in cages, but it was actually from under the Obama administration. Exactly. And they're still in cages, by the way. Yeah. That's yeah. The under Biden. Biden. Yeah. We don't see AOC standing there crying. So, yeah. the, you know, at the border. So. Now that binds in. Yeah. Or the uh, that that terrible thing of this law of this Justice Department uh, lawyer who is saying that who's basically defending the treatment of children, saying it's not inhumane just because they sleep in like aluminum foil blankets right. and don't have toothbrushes. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. 
And they're like, this is a terrible, look at this Trump appointee. But it's like, actually, she was an Obama appointee. She just stayed there. In the exactly, Department. exactly. But, but you know, our, 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 our community, the, 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 the American public is the most propagandized. And so we believe, not we, a lot of people believe in the American exceptionalism. Um, they believe what they see. Most people only watch CNN, right, or MSNBC. Um, and so they don't get a lot of analysis. And, 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 and they believe in the two-party difference. Even when it's right in your face, I mean, Obama was the perfect example. Was the perfect, you know, perfect in, person in charge of empire because he could get away with so much. And you know, people like you know, it's the celebrity culture. So you like you know, a good-looking man saying they're lying to you. And what about your own journey and your family's journey? Um, you, as someone who's Haitian American, where do your uh, do your parents have your political ideas? Uh, were they influenced by their own experiences? Um, yeah, the yeah, family they, or? yeah, they're, um, they, um, my dad passed away, but he, uh, my dad is a minister, um, in Miami. I grew up in Miami, Florida with a large Haitian and, and grew up in a Haitian church. This is my dad. Um, no, I'm, I'm the outlier in my family. <laughs> Sorry, my dog. Um, I'm, um, I'm the outlier in the family and I'm very, um, your dog wants credit too. I think your dog's yeah, also an independent, an independent thinker. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wish I could. I'm sorry about oh, that. No, no, no. Um, but but so so part of that, you know, um, and my dad, for example, supported. I ha- I hate to say it, Bush because of you know abortion because you know he was a minister. Um, and 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 you know the other thing is there's so much. There's so much, you know, Haitian Americans always see like, you know, the Reagans were terrible. Clinton always smiled and showed up, even though he was doing the most horrible thing. And then Clinton is the perfect abuser, right? Because he'll smile in your face and, and then he'll come and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry I did you wrong, um, but still do it, right? And, 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 and people will be like, oh, he said he was sorry. So people right. do, um, so, so people, you know, Haitian Americans are mostly Democrat um, still, right? And as most people, you know, especially black people, um, and so I, I feel like I am an outlier, both among the, the U.S. Black community as well as my Asian American community. Hmm. Someone asked if you are on Twitter, by the way. No, I'm not. Well, I'm on Twitter, but not under my name. Oh, OK. And you're not open. You're, you're not I'm public. Not, right? no. OK. Yeah. Well, anything else? Any Leslie, anything you want to add or ask or um, uh, Jamima, do you want to make sure that you hit anything else? I mean, this was great. This is very yeah, thank you so uh, much for uh, coming on. It's very important. It's nice to have, you know, actual Haitians be able to speak for themselves for a change. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I do want to say, you know, even though I'm a Haitian American, I do want to say we have to really take about the plight of the Africans, the Afro-Colombians uh, and, the, you know, the, the people from Honduras, the Guatemala, El Salvador that are also stuck at the border. And I think that's very important. And I think it's we do everyone a disservice by not thinking about um, all these people that are at the border um, and, and focusing only on Haitians really does not does not solve the issue for everyone. And because none of us are free to all of us are free. Thank you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Have a great night. All right. You too. Bye bye. Oh, it's always the good ones you want on Twitter. Oh, well, she is on Twitter, but not not open. That was great, huh? Yeah. Excellent interview. Excellent interview, yeah. I mean, great, yeah, great guest. That's what we do. And we will see you next week. And make sure you share, subscribe, like, and of course, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much to all of our guests today. 
Facebook and Patreons to hear our discussion about Nicki Minaj and her husband harassing a woman who accused the husband of rape, as well as our discussion of the women of The View smearing Monica Lewinsky. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 